Hi, this is Jerry DiPiano, and I'm with Dr. Deborah Saltman, and you're listening to Love Mia Vita. Hi, Jerry. Nice to be with you again. Nice to be with you. I'm really tired today, Deb. I didn't sleep much last night, and it reminded me that we're going to do this podcast. I was I had interrupted sleep, and it was difficult to get back to sleep. And I thought our listeners would probably appreciate a little bit of um, information that could help them to improve their quality of sleep and even uh, think about ways in which to not have as much disrupted sleep. Hi, welcome to Love Mia Vita podcast, the podcast to women for women. I'm Jerry DiPiano, women's healthcare advocate and founder of FemPharma. I'm joined by Dr. Deborah Saltman, physician, researcher, the thinker, and medical director. Thanks, Jerry. I'm really proud to be a part of FemPharma's commitment to keeping women healthy and safe and this series of podcasts. Together, we're providing solutions for women who care about living their best lives at any age. As trailblazers, we aim to break down the myths and provide the truths about everything women want and care about. Imagine that. We asked women what they want, and we're about to deliver it. By the way, we hope to entertain you, and that's no BS. Over the coming months, we'll be speaking with experts about topics that matter, mental and physical well-being, and what more could be done. We will push our experts to give you answers that are real. So send us your questions, and here's to loving our lives. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, sleep disorders have reached a level that constitutes a significant public health issue. And they've looked at the incidence and prevalence of sleep. And surprisingly to me, what they learned is that almost 50 million people have reported problems that impact their concentration during the day as a result of sleep issues. In fact, they talk about 24 million individuals that indicated that lack of sleep interfered with their driving, and 18 million reported that sleep deficiency impacted academic and job performance. That's pretty terrible numbers, aren't they? Shocking, that kind of figures. I mean, I think some of the other data says that every second person in the Western world experiences some kind of sleep disorder or disturbance. And, you know, Jerry, I think it's really important that we... Sleep is like sex. It's this big term that everyone mentions. But I think it's kind of nice if we might unpack sleep. For example, there are issues with getting to sleep. There are issues with staying asleep. There are issues with going back to sleep after you've been woken up. And there are issues uh, with uh, staying awake, like you're saying now, after you've had a night in which, gosh, you wished you were asleep the whole night. And it's really hard to wake up and get on with the day. So lots of our listeners might be experiencing one or other of those kind of problems. You know, it's, an, it's interesting to break that apart, if you will. And we, we hear the term insufficient sleep. And, and there, are, there are some criteria that are used to determine um, what is considered insufficient sleep, which is technically defined as a curtailed sleep pattern with the following characteristics. First, that it has persisted for at least three months 
for most days of the week. And two, is accompanied with complaints of sleepiness during the day. So some of the, the considerations that were just mentioned uh, in the reference to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. We should also not confuse sleep insufficiency with problem sleeping like insomnia. Yep. Insomnia is the inability to sleep. Despite having an opportunity to do so, as opposed to being deprived of opportunities to sleep, such as the situation with shift work. If you're a nurse working 11 p.m. to 7 a.m., or you happen to have a a, a job where you must um, work the third shift, which is, again, um, at a a different uh, operating time uh, and, and interferes with your circadian rhythms, right? So those, those individuals may be able to sleep, but are not um, given the opportunity to do so because of their, um, their career, some caring for, for a child or an older person or a partner. Or even, as we know, in the armed forces, certainly there's a lot of reports that sleep deprivation occurs in, in battle zones or in, for nurses in acute care hospitals, that kind of stuff, even in the armed forces. And a lot of the studies on sleep called the sleep deprivation studies have been done in those kind of acute situations. You know, I like to divide the kind of common sleep problems that our listeners might be having into about four or five different uh, categories. I mean. The first one I call is acute sleep abstinence. And like when you smash a car, you need to get it repaired. And acute changes in your life, such as stress or conflict or recent environmental change, can kind of like bend your sleep bumper. You need to get it repaired. And what's really nice is that kind of sleep disorder is self-limiting and can get better and it needs a resolution of the underlying issues as opposed to those chronic insomnia conditions that you reported the CDC was talking about. So those of us quite often have an acute sleep accident or disorder like someone's knocking around next door or we've got a train that goes past us regularly and that's an acute sleep accident. That's one. The other one that I call talk about is I call it inadequate disinfection of the day. In the, in the daytime, we infect ourselves in a way that stops sleep. Whether it's coffee or alcohol or stress. I hope or, you're not drinking during the day. I am drinking so much Diet Coke. Sorry, <laughs> are you going to support me? Coke, do you hear that? Pepsi, who is supporting me? Yes, I, I really like my caffeine during the day. You know, they contribute to sleep difficulty. And for that, water is a wonderful antidote. So if you match your caffeine consumption with water consumption, you can do that kind of dilutional effect. So that's the second one. Another one is one that occasionally gets to me, and I've had investigated, but doesn't happen often, is restless legs. Now, restless legs can drive some people crazy, and and it can be due to kidney infections or other diseases, but for most of us, it's just restless legs. And we can kick our partners around or get a cramp in our calves. And if you're a jogger like me, you can, that restless leg can just wake you up and you've got to get, jump out of the bed. And then I call it, I don't call it chronic insomnia. I call it sleep prevention syndrome. Is that people get into a cycle in which it's such a strong cycle that it prevents sleep. That it's not chronic insomnia anymore. I've got it in my head that I can't sleep and I'm almost preventing myself from sleeping. Fear of the bed. Yeah, yeah. And you know, 
people describe, I keep watching the clock, oh, it's another half hour, I close my eyes, I go to the bathroom, I come back, another 10 minutes. You know, it's clock watching kind of activity. So that's the next one is sleep prevention syndrome. And, and, and lots of us at times have that because we're obsessive about the need to get to sleep or get back to sleep. And then finally, the, the major problem with chronic insomnia, which we know about, is medication overdose. I've tried everything and now nothing works. Tried everything, the doctor's given me something, tried a natural product and nothing works. And so I see those as the main problems. Acute sleep accidents, inadequate disinfection of the day, some kind of physical thing, and I mentioned restless legs and, and I won't mention for the listeners the big one that gets us all, which is the S word, snoring, which can knock out sleep for anybody. Uh, and then sleep prevention syndrome, where we're trying too hard and we're actually preventing ourselves sleeping. And finally, medication overdose. We've tried everything and it hasn't worked. Do you think there's any others, Jerry? Since we're speaking primarily to women, I must say that women are really at an increased risk for sleep disorders. And I'm really frustrated by this. So most of the investigations and research on sleep have been conducted disproportionately in men. Not a surprise, right? Um, mm. it, it's very disappointing. However, as we continue to evolve our knowledge of gender and sex-based differences, We've also increased the understanding of the way in which the amount of sleep and quality of sleep are different in men and women. And we have to make the distinction between sex-based versus gender-based differences. And we know that sex-based differences include biological factors, and those are hormones, sleep cycle, circadian rhythm. As opposed to gender, which is the way in which you describe yourself, and that may be based on societal and cultural issues. So we have to keep those two in mind. I absolutely believe that we need our listeners to understand that yes, sleep issues will impact them more so and may start at a much earlier age than they even anticipated or have an awareness of. For example, hormones and fluctuating hormone levels throughout a woman's life play an important role in sleep and puberty there are changing levels of estrogen and progesterone during the menstrual cycle. A decline of these hormones may play a role in disrupted mm. sleep. Women with PMS, premenstrual syndrome, or premenstrual dysphoric disorder may also experience some heightened problems with their sleep. And sadly, there's a twofold risk of depression that coincides with insomnia at puberty. It's shocking figures, isn't it? It is shocking, but it's important to remember this because when you start developing unhealthy sleep patterns, they may persist throughout your reproductive life cycle. And if you're a young woman listening to this podcast, what you understand is that you may get up to change a tampon or a pad, um, you may have cramps, you may have other issues, bloating, and that may in fact impact your sleep because you have disrupted sleep. And then during your reproductive years, and especially during pregnancy, the hormonal changes will impact, or may impact your sleep. For example, in the first trimester of pregnancy, women may experience insomnia, and that may worsen during the third trimester. Then you add to that more hormonal changes, the pressure of the pregnancy on your bladder, which may require you to go up and use the go out and use the bathroom during the middle of the night. And in fact, it's estimated that 50% of pregnant women experience insomnia-like symptoms that may persist after they have their child. 
So once again, more significant impact on the woman. And then let's not forget the main event, that is caring for the child. Disproportionately, it is the woman who is feeding and caring for that child at multiple times throughout the night. So she has disrupted sleep. And that's so right. And I suppose the big message there, particularly for women, is you've got to love sleep and respect it whenever you get it or however you get it. And we all know that really the brain just needs two periods of about 90 minutes on which the dreaming occurs and the brain says, I'm refreshed. But our bodies require more and we get tired. And when our bodies are tired, we can't think as well. But that's not, that's a different kind of sleep and rest. So you have to love whatever sleep you have and respect it. After lunch, haven't you ever been in the position where you just would like a couple of toothpicks to keep those eyes open and you put your head down on the bench and you stress out because someone's going to walk in and see that hand mark on your head because you've had your head down or you, you haven't played with your keys on the computer. So after meals, it's pretty tricky to keep awake if you haven't had a good sleep. So that face plant on the computer is not a good look. I mean, the reason why that happens, of course, is at night you're resting. So the blood can go to your brain and oxygenate your brain so you can have these wonderful technicolour dreams or whatever you need to clear it. But after lunch, all the blood's going to your gut and your brain's saying, hey, I've got nothing to function up there. Don't take the oxygen away from me. And you're sitting up on top of it. I want to go back to um, what happens with women and sleep in particular and obviously as, as women enter perimenopause and then move through menopause, we notice that sleep issues are exacerbated and particularly if you started having sleep issues at a younger age, they often worsen. So we know perimenopausal and menopausal women do experience a number of sleep issues and, and some of these issues are it's obvious why they develop these problems. They have a fluctuation of hormones, they have hot flashes, they have night sweats. They may get up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom because we know that overactive bladder and nocturia, which is going to the bathroom at night, will often cause disrupted sleep. What I was surprised to learn was that during the transition between perimenopause and menopause, that between 33% and 51% of women report sleep complaints. And you know, we collected our own data on this to try to get a, a better understanding of how many women who follow Fem Pharma experience these problems and what the frequency is. And, and it's fairly consistent with what we have seen here with the syndicated data that we've collected and that I just reported here. So it's, uh, it's estimated that 85% of these women uh, with hot flashes do have disrupted sleep and 50% of those women who have, surprisingly, vaginal and vulvar dryness, urgency and frequency are also impacted by disrupted sleep. Yeah, well, it's, uh, if you've got something physical going on, you know, the body tells us messages. It's not going to let us sleep if we're in physical pain or feeling uncomfortable, and hormonal changes can do that. I mean, we know that from young to old, older women that the changes impact on the sleep. And, but the important thing to do is, is, is to love that as a fact because as the levels of acceptable weight and blood pressure have actually decreased in alcohol consumption, the acceptable levels of sleep have decreased too. It used to be acceptable only to have eight hours sleep. Remember, get a good eight hours sleep. And you say to the children, get a good eight hours sleep. And, and kids do need longer sleep. And certainly adolescents do need that for their last final bone growth spurt because the hormones change overnight. But as you get older, 
the needs for sleep drop enormously. So do we have unrealistic expectations? Because the National Sleep Surveys suggest that if you're over 64, you only need five hours sleep a night. Now, I find that fascinating because if I get tired early, if I've had a busy day and, and say the latest I go to bed is 10, if I only need five hours sleep, I'm awake at three o'clock in the morning. And what am I supposed to do? It's dark, in winter it's cold, there's nothing, no good programs to watch. And then when it hits six o'clock and the light comes on, or comes out, I want to go back to sleep. So one of the things we have to come to terms with is what do we do with our time that doesn't need to be in sleep? Do we be anxious about it and have acute prevention, sleep prevention syndrome? Or do we love our bed? Now, I think this is a bit different from what we used to tell people. I remember as a physician, I used to say, don't go to bed unless you're going to sleep. Do nothing else in bed. I, I, I wondered if that was a little bit counterintuitive because I think a lot of people like to have sex in bed. I still think they do, despite what the TV shows show. Um, I think people still enjoy bed being a position. But, but so you have to love your bed. Love that place you're in. I mean, beds are beautiful places just to rest. They are fabulous places to have a meditation, to do relaxation exercises, to have you know sleepy foods. They're just really the right place to do a lot of things. So I always say the first thing is, if you don't, if you have problems with sleep, first thing is, do you love your bed? And how do you check? Do you love your pillows? Do you have a duvet or blanket or sheets? Do you love them? Is the bed the right kind of bed for you? Do you love your bed partner? Because that's quite often a problem. So I wondered if we'd have asked our, all our listeners, do you love your bed? And do you love your bedroom or do you dread your bed? So I love my bed. Yeah. I absolutely love my bed. We you know, took time to make the, the bedroom very sumptuous uh, with soothing colors and fluffy pillows. And we have a very lovely comforter. And not everybody has that opportunity though. Right, so it you know for, for individuals who are living a more sparse life, the bed may be a source of anxiety. But you know, if we say that the bed is the only place is for sleeping and that's all it's for, then there's no way you can love it, even if it's hard or soft or with the right pajamas or not pajamas. Speaking of which, I did some work about sleepy clothes. Did you know there are clothes? that are better to make you sleepy than other clothes? You mean you don't, you shouldn't sleep in your gym clothes? Because I sleep in my gym clothes. Too oh, much information. Well, it's interesting you should say that. It depends whether your gym clothes are cotton or not. Because cotton is natural, lightweight, it breathes, so, and it doesn't irritate the skin. It's quite a nice thing to kind of sleep in. But the trouble is, it's not a good insulator. So at night, our body temperatures vary. And as we talked before, 50% of the population, female population experience a hot flash at some stage and 10% of the male population have hot flashes as well. So if we bring our men back into discussion, you, if you sweat, you've got a wet cotton tracksuit on, right? Now, so what else can you do? You can, you know, all these wonderful movies with all these women dressed in silk negligees down there in bed to look seductive. Well, you know, it can keep you warm when you're cold and keep you hot when you're when you're, when you're cool and, and cold when you're hot and you can do all that. But you know, what's the dry cleaning bills? You can't, you've got to dry clean silk. And also it's a bit slippery, it slides around. I like my things to be in a fixed position and there's some evidence about that now. So silk's not good. 
Now, you can do... Does it, is your tracksuit that kind of moisture-wicking one where, you know, if you sweat, it takes all the sweat out of you? It's cotton. Yeah, but there's moisture. Band T-shirts and yoga pants. <laughs> <laughs> I sleep with Metallica. <laughs> For the oh, Grateful Dead, because, you know, <laughs> or Jimi Hendrix, depending <laughs> on my mood. Oh, well, I sleep in my birthday suit, but I'm not telling anyone that. <laughs> but back to the moisture, you know, moisture wicking stuff is pretty good because it, it can take, it takes the wetness away from the body. It puts the wetness on the sheets and other places, but it takes it away from the body, which is good, and allows your body regulation of temperature. What is not good is wool and fleece, because both of them can promote overheating. One of the things that people wake up from is being overheated. You usually go to bed quite cool and you warm up at night because your thermoregulation allows you to lie flat. You know, when you're standing up, your feet get cold because it's a long way down in gravity, up and down to get the blood. But when you're lying down, the thermoregulation works. So wool, wool kind of stuff and fleeces, they can irritate the skin and, and, and decrease circulation. Apropos, the other thing that's really fascinating is some dyes are better than others. It depends. Have you ever had the same... I love to get the same kind of jumper. I always get the same V-neck jumper. I love it, this cotton jumper. And I find that in black, it's fabulous. And in blue, it itches me terribly. So you might find a pair of PJs that you like that are in one colour, and you get them in another colour, and they irritate you. So colour dyes are important to check out too. Which particular ones are better on your body than others? Because... Fabrics like cotton take some colours better than they take other colours. And for example, the funny one is white because it takes a lot to bleach cotton. So anyway, sleepy time clothes are important. If you don't sleep on cl in clothes, then it's important to make sure you've got air circulating around as well. I tend to keep it very cold and it's interesting how life has changed over the years uh, since I've been married for a number of years. In the beginning, I was cranking up the heat, and as I've matured, I crank up the air or turn the in the winter time, I open windows mm. to keep it cool in mm. there, and that's a function of you know changes in my hormones over yeah. time. Yeah. So I like to keep the room very cool. Yeah. It actually yeah. does facilitate sleep, so keeping your room somewhat cool yeah. or temperate, yeah. not freezing, as yeah. I, I may oftentimes do in, uh, in, in my husband's words, but keeping the room cool does help, and you're right, Deb, um, all kidding aside. Um, wearing the right clothes to bed and not you know not layering it up when you go to bed particularly if you're a woman who is in perimenopause or menopause so keeping that that those clothes um, those those clothing layers um, off of your body so that you can naturally go into sleep we also noticed that there is a you know you talked about the time so the timing of your sleep so we know that it's tied to circadian rhythm. So that's your internal 24-hour clock. And we have seen the research that the women will tend to go to bed earlier, and that means they wake earlier. So if you're going to bed at 9.30 and waking at 3.30 in the morning and then lying awake watching the clock, that's not a good idea. And I know we're, we're going to have a chat about some techniques, um, mm -hmm. non-pharmacologic mm -hmm. Mm. Uh, techniques that that we may want to think about and that researchers have also recommended in terms of how to ameliorate your sleep symptoms and improve your quality of sleep. Absolutely. I just wanted to put a big plug in. I've talked about sleepy clothes. just want to talk a bit about sleepy foods because there are certain foods that help you get to sleep and keep you asleep. And we all know about serotonin. 
which is found in milk. But we also know about melatonin, which is a newcomer. Well, relatively new. In the last 20 years, people used to use it for jet lag, but now it's kind of universally used to help people get to sleep. And it's found in some products, some red grapes, not all of them. So if you go out there buying some red grapes, you mightn't find the right ones. And it's found in walnuts, and you've just got to be careful on which walnuts you get. But there are some products out there that have melatonin. And melatonin is very good because, as you said, it's about your rhythms. And your rhythm in the brain is ruled partly by melatonin and partly by cortisol, which is produced in a gla adrenal gland, which is next to the kidney. So you want to do serotonin and melatonin. And then there's tryptophan, which we also know is in milk. And, and, but tryptophan is also in bananas. Is it bananas? It's in bananas. Bananas. Bananas or bananas. It's in bananas for me. It's in bananas and in eggs. And they also enable sleep, which is very interesting, isn't it? Isn't it? Because how many people have eggs for dinner or supper? Most people have eggs in the morning, you know, and a banana smoothie. I don't know how people get to work in the morning with that much tryptophan on board. So there are sleepy foods and there are sleepy clothes and there are sleep treatments. And the sleep treatments can vary from behavioural techniques to medications. And it's really important to remember there is no perfect sleep medication. There just isn't one. And all available products, you know, I, I talk a lot about weight reduction and maybe we'll do something about weight management another time. But all available products can do something for someone in the short term. Someone's going to find something right with a sleep product. The problem is the longer term, how to maintain something that helps you with sleep. And you know, the price, I think we've talked about it on previous uh, podcasts, is the price of any kind of liberty or liberating yourself is eternal vigilance. If you do the same thing all the time, and that's, I can see that from our survey, women are saying they've tried everything, but being stuck in one kind of technique won't help. You need to mix them up a bit, turn them around, and when one's not working, try something else. You know, it's interesting um, to look at the lack of research that's been done um, as it pertains to gender and sex-based differences um, as it pertains to sleep. And unfortunately, as you might know, because we've worked in this industry for decades, the treatment options um, and the treatment research has generally been done in men and not in women. Yep. So ameliorating sleep symptoms in women has been much more of a challenge as a consequence of that. This became the subject of change uh, more recently. In 2014, I won't mention the, the name of the prescription medication, but it was being overprescribed, and women were overdosed. And so not, not only did it have a deleterious effect, which is that women became um, tolerant to the medication, but they also had issues related to accidents as it pertains to being overdosed by this sleep yes. medication to the point where the United States Food and Drug Administration changed the way in which the product was labeled and changed the prescribing, particularly for women. We know that these drugs are metabolized much more slowly in women than they are for men. and. Then we also have the issue of tolerance. So how to begin with the most benign approach is really what we should be thinking about. Absolutely. You know, we talked about sleep hygiene, which is what to eat, exercise, love your bed, biofeedback, uh, um, and mindfulness, of course, plays an important role. 
Now, there's some other stuff. I, I did mention melatonin before, and melatonin is a really important sleep inducer and, and something that gives you a better quality of sleep. Um, some people find acupuncture helps, acupressure, particularly around the ear, is supposed to help, stress reduction, because remember we talked about that before. I mean, there's some new things. Uh, some people say that tart cherry juice can work, but that's once again because it's got melatonin, and some have and some don't. But really, melatonin is the feature of both the cherry juice, cherry juice and, the, and the walnuts, so however you get your melatonin is probably going to help you. I mean, I haven't talked about um, kind of pharmacological products because they really only work in the short time and you and I have talked about the big problem of tolerance. You just take more and more until they don't work at all and you become addicted. Right. And there's a there's the in, the issue of refractory insomnia. So when when individuals have been on whether it's a benzodiazepine or another drug that um, has addictive potential and that where you build a tolerance. Once you determine that you have reached that point where they no longer work unless you continue to accelerate or increase your dosage, it becomes very difficult then to reduce your dosage and to get good restful sleep. And so the, the, the issue of tolerance um, and withdrawal from these products mm -hmm. is really a significant issue. And there's a, there's a way in which individuals have to withdraw from the product just as you would any type of narcotic product. So that, that may become problematic and then it, it may uh, also introduce refractory insomnia. So proceed cautiously. Obviously there's a place for mm -hmm. prescription therapy mm, under the supervision of a, a practitioner as typically a psychiatrist yeah. but um, first rule out some of the other factors that may be impacting your sleep we probably also need to remind folks that a sleep diary is important to try to ascertain why you are experiencing these problems and using that with a practitioner can be very helpful. That's good that you mentioned the diary because the diary is also a good way of measuring outcomes. When we say, when we ask people sleep, what I might want from sleep might not be what you want. You might want to have a better quality of sleep, a deeper sleep so you feel rested. I might want to have shorter time until I fall asleep or sleep latency. I'm sick of tossing and turning. That's what bugs me. So our measures are all different. We've also discussed the ideas about daytime drowsiness or fatigue or, you know, not being able to change it, whatever the response is. So there are about 10 or 12 different measurable outcomes. And our listeners, when they think about their sleep, really need to think about what component of it they want to change. And that is where a diary can be helpful too, can be very helpful too. If you have a list of all the different things, what was the quality of my sleep? How long did it take me to get to sleep? Um, did I wake up? How long was I awake for? How many nights did I have to use some other product, either a hypnotic medication or a melatonin or something like that? Um, how many days a week was I drowsy? Was it every day? Do I feel continually fatigued by not having sleep? As you mentioned, Fatigue is a natural feature of having children and women have the main child rearing and maintaining activity. And also we have a reproductive cycle that keeps us awake. When we have our periods we quite often get cramping in the middle of the night or heavy bleeding. And so our reproductive cycles can keep us awake as well. And, and finally, how we see ourselves in sleep and whether we are depressed about not being asleep.
Yes, women are at an increased risk of developing major depressive disorder in their lifetime to begin with, and ex it's exacerbated by poor quality sleep or the inability to sleep. So those comorbidities really do impact women more so than men, and it's something that we will investigate in future podcasts. But I thought I would, um, just as a teaser, I share with you what we learned from women in our audience concerning sleep. We asked the question, how often has poor sleep troubled you in the last month? And nearly 70% of our 200 respondents indicated that they had either very often or, or sometimes experienced poor sleep in the last month. How many nights per week do you think you have poor sleep in a week? And overwhelmingly, women responded. Over 44% said between three to four nights per week. So the data that we've collected are very consistent with what we have seen reported in the literature. There's obviously much more work to be done, particularly as it pertains to women and sleep issues. And there are a number of interesting articles that, uh, that we would be happy to share on our website with you, tune in uh, to our blog posts, which may be found at www.fempharma.com for a list of articles that uh, you can read and to uh, also review our blog posts, which will have similar information so that you can gain a better understanding of your sleep, how to obtain better sleep, and remind you, you are not alone, women. We are all sleepless in the U.S. <laughs> <laughs> and not just in Seattle. <laughs> not just in Seattle. We'd like to thank you for listening in this afternoon. Stay tuned for Sleep 2.0, our next podcast. We will investigate uh, most of the, the opportunities to change the way in which you can sleep and sleep better. And we wish you all a happy and pleasant day and pleasant tonight. And here's to loving our lives.